Imagine learning in a small group intimate setting while exploring unique European locations. EU Vet CE Experiences offers race-approved CE seminars that combine half-day lectures with time to relax and discover captivating cultures. The CE sessions are delivered in English, allowing you to elevate your career while vacationing with loved ones. Experience the perfect blend of learning and luxury at EU Vet CE Experiences interactive seminars in hand-picked European destinations. Elevate your knowledge and recharge simultaneously. Visit euveterinaryce.com to learn more. There's two types of honesty that I recognize. There's honesty and then there's rigorous honesty. And the rigorous honesty, when you truly, when nobody around with yourself, think that you did the right thing or said the right thing. Dr. Ivan Zak is a veterinarian, an entrepreneur, and a passionate advocate for the well-being of veterinary professionals. After 12 years in emergency medicine and a severe case of burnout, Ivan pivoted to creating products that improved the workflows and experience of veterinary teams. He founded SmartFlow, a workflow optimization system and veterinary integration solutions, an executive consulting firm helping veterinary consolidators with enterprise management and burnout prevention. Pursuing his goal to make a sizable impact on the veterinary industry, Dr. Zach founded Galaxy Vets, a veterinary healthcare system co-owned by its employees and with burnout prevention as a strategic priority. Along the way, Ivan obtained an MBA degree in international healthcare management with a thesis, Implementation of Lean Thinking to Improve the Employee Experience. He serves on the board of Galaxy Vet Foundation and Vets in Mind Alliance and co-hosts two podcasts, Veterinary Innovation Podcast and Consolidate That. His hobbies are fishing, badminton, weightlifting, and reading. Ivan lives in Canada with his wife, two kids, and four ducks. So let's dive in with Dr. Ivan Zach. I am originally from Ukraine. I came here in 2002. Um, and I was in my last year of vet school, but the way I got into vet school in Ukraine, it was sort of a plan B. Um, all my friends were uh, lawyers and dentists and cops and KGB, and uh, they all were laughing with my career choice because to them, I was the guy who sticks his hand up the cow's butt. And uh, <laughs> But I was really passionate about biology in high school. And then when it was a career choice, which we do too early, I think, in Ukraine, our university education is five years. It's not split into bachelor and master's, so it's all packed into one. Uh, so essentially... I got into vet school technically when I was 16, So, but it was because I couldn't get into the medical school. So it was sort of a plan B. And to be honest, I wasn't looking forward to it, but I reinvented it for myself in Canada when I immigrated here. So, so I moved in my last year of vet school and uh, ended up using my almost five years of vet school in Ukraine to get into the vet hospital here in Canada into a position of a janitor. So that's all it was good for. And then I realized that it's a completely different profession here. And it's, um, you know, it's a different uh, slice of population that is that is usually our veterinarians and different environments. So I was really um, excited to try to become a vet in Canada. And I got into vet school and the rest is a history. Now, did you know you wanted to do emergency medicine pretty early on or when did that come into play? I think I became really passionate about it during 
the vet school because I worked. It, it was pretty difficult experience for me because I got admitted straight into the second year. And as you know, in the first year, the that's the most of the vocabulary that you learn. And not only it was the first year that I didn't do here with my Canadian classmates, and it was a foreign language for me. So it was it was really difficult. And while I was in vet school, I worked first year, I worked in the equine department overnight. And uh, that's because I was afraid of horses and I wanted to to overcome that. So I worked for a year in the equine emergency in the teaching hospital and did not overcome that. I just realized <laughs> I'm just not going to do it. It's a healthy uh, fear. It's okay. <laughs> I tried. They're big. They're big animals. And I've seen people kicked and I just didn't think that I want to carry that risk on a daily basis. And then I switched and I worked in the emergency department overnight. So for, la- for the last sort of two and a half, three years of school, I was always overnight. So I was passionate about the complexity I also was passionate about the sort of fast results. So you see, you know, you either treat them or not. And then I saw much more variety. And I think that further in my career, I realized, and I think it's there's truth in that, that when you get into monotonous uh, actions as a veterinarian post-graduation, then you you have more tendency to burn out earlier. And that's why I think that emergency was exciting for me because it's variety. You don't know what's walking in through the door. But at some point, you see enough spleens, enough hit by cars, enough everything else, and it gets boring as well. So, uh, yeah. Is that what contributed to your burnout? Because I know you talk about the burnout in the profession quite a bit. It's a passion topic for you. And I assume part of that is because you've experienced it yourself. Do you mind sharing a little bit about your own personal experience with that? Yeah, the the part that getting into sort of monotonous without uh, change of task, I think it's a part of it. And and it's not just sort of passion of mine. Well, it is passion of mine. And it's, it's arguably my career choice going forward to figure out how uh, to combat the burnout in veterinary domain. And yes, because I did go through this experience. But I think it's a combination of things. And when it escalates and depend, depending how it manifests itself, and it could be in different forms, it could be in deep depression, in alcohol or drug addiction, it could be in isolation, it could be in development of cynicism towards profession. So it's a very complex problem with different symptoms. And a lot of those are not pleasant to admit. So therefore, you don't really know what contributes to it. So I've spent last three and a half years and hoping to spend another uh, these five, 10 years going forward, uh, researching this and understanding how it happens. But with me specifically, in year six of my career, everything just became didn't matter. Um, And it was a difficult choice. And it was uh, easier to not live than live. And, uh, and essentially that was my experience and yeah, and I ended up in a clinical death situation, but, um, I recovered in about six months after that, um, with the professional help and I found different passion and it yeah, actually, I rediscovered the same passion and new passion in veterinary career and, uh, have been, you know, happier than ever for the last 11 years. That's fantastic. Now, when you look at your, summaries and about pages on all of the different projects you've worked on or articles you've written. It talks about, you know, over 12 years of experience working in different veterinary clinics. What was the transition into a very much a clinical veterinarian to developing some of these entrepreneurial endeavors? If you look on the surface, it could sound like, how did you do that? And especially because I build a software product, 
and everybody thinks, well, how did you do it? Did you have a technical background? And I didn't, and, and I still don't. And But I had a friend who is the developer and software developer that I articulated it to. He's actually from Ukraine and a high school classmate of mine. Uh, we used to be in the same school band together. <laughs> but it was the vision of how to optimize workflow in the veterinary clinics when it, we, we created SmartFlow. Maybe some listeners know or heard about it. And I think I just directly apply exactly what I know. And that's what I suggest to all veterinarians when I talk to them is it's essentially you don't have to leave the profession, which is 40% of veterinarians want to do. You can take everything you learn and pivot. And there's so many directions you can take as a veterinarian uh, from arguably, if you're burning out, I think it's a bad decision to become boarded, like board certified, because that actually limits your opportunities, because you then become one thing specifically that you added three more years. And if you're bored of that as well, then it's a tough choice, because you just established a different uh, lifestyle. And then going back to veterinarian, uh, just veterinary or something else, it could be a step back. I think there's just so many avenues that that you can take. But for me, uh, because I saw so many hospitals, I identified a problem that I could actually kind of template in my head that I could see many hospitals actually have the same problems and the same inefficiencies. So therefore, I could apply that. And while I was doing SmartFlow, it was for six years, slowly transitioning from practicing to non-practicing at all. People would always ask me and say, do you miss medicine? Absolutely not. I improved 650 hospitals. I've seen more hospitals and patients than anybody else. And I did feel like I'm helping patients at scale rather than individual patients because using our treatment sheets that were digitalized, there was, well, at least at the time of that we sold to IDEX, there were 650 hospitals. And I've seen patients and clinicians and teams in Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Europe. It was, it was a wild ride. And uh, yeah, and it was just a natural transition. I don't think it's a radical pivot. Yeah, no, ex and this is exactly what I like to talk about on this podcast is there are so many options. Maybe specializing is, is fine for some people. Maybe that's exactly what they want to do. But then there are a lot of other opportunities where you don't have to specialize, different ways of pivot, where you don't have to leave the profession either. You can make an impact in a huge way like you have yourself. That's just one example. You started uh, that, I believe, was sold to IDEX. That company that you were referring to, correct? Yeah, SmartFlow is we digitalized digitalized treatment sheets and whiteboards, and then it was integrated in a bunch of software. But yeah, then we sold it to IDEX. And, and so it continues to help different veterinary hospitals as well. So what happened with your personal career uh, after SmartFlow? Uh, well, it's it's not after. I think that there's no distinct kind of thing. Well, there you can probably arguably say that. So my passion, and I think that's another thing that I observed about veterinarians. My passion is in learning. Um, I just like continuously develop and learn. So, and I think that it, that's, an, again, one of the hypotheses that I have that I would like to prove that I think that some veterinarians burn out because they stop studying. Mm. And I think that veterinarians are nerds in a good way. And then, and it's, it's a very selected group of people because most people you ask who wants to be a veterinarian, they are, you know, they wanted to be a vet when they were 10 or eight or something like that. And they decided to become one and they become one in the late twenties or in their thirties. So it's a 20 year goal that they hit with a very consistent passion. And then when they arrive to the end of that goal, there's no more goal. So I think that arguably, arguably veterinarians can reestablish themselves and get excited again for setting new goals. And one of them could be getting an education. 
So that's my long answer to what I was doing after. So while I was doing SmartFlow, I did my MBA. And again, I didn't go far outside, but I, I wanted to add color to what I know already. So it was in the international healthcare management. So it was related to management of the medical organizations. And I learned tons and tons in the uh, human hospitals, but with the question in mind, uh, which was eventually my dissertation on uh, burnout and how did they deal with burnout in the in the medical field. So the end of that MBA was dissertation on how to prevent burnout in the veterinary industry using what we learned from healthcare. So and that was a transitional phase into the company that I built after called Veterinary Integration Solutions. And the idea was not to just take your dissertation as many dissertations do and then put on the shelf and nobody ever remembers about them. I use that as a sort of uh, springboard for this new company where I was hoping to teach consolidators how to manage organizations with people in mind, because a lot of them are chasing profits. And so they should because they're uh, responding to your to their investors and their their goal is to return investment of their shareholders. But in this field right now, when we're so there's so few veterinarians, it's so hard to get veterinarians. If you don't pay attention, we don't have a vet to replace every time. And in fact, it takes 10 months to find a veterinarian and up to $100,000 in recruiting fees. So my hope was that now consolidators will pay attention to the talent and talent acquisition and not in a way of how do you you know find and recruit, but how do you imp- inspire? How do you inspire people to work for you? And how do you inspire people to stay with you? And so that was my journey for the next three years after that. And I would say that we created a tremendous management methodology. It was working as a business framework, and we completely failed on convincing consolidators to actually pay attention to people. So (laughs) that's why. And we worked with about 25 of them, and all of them would nod and say, we're all about veterinarians. We're all about making their life easier. And if you ask them, how do you measure that? they would stutter and then they would say, we really need to buy 100 hospitals in 18 months. Everything else doesn't matter. And that's when you dig really deep in their strategy. So we stopped doing that. And we said, now we've helped enough consolidators to understand how that works. Let's build a consolidation group that will actually have people in mind, which is Galaxy Vets that I'm involved in right now, where the main purpose of it is actually decreasing burnout in veterinary domain. Yes, I relate to a lot of what you just said. One, you just described my first uh, journey of being a veterinarian is wanting to do it from a small age. You put the blinders on, you've got the goals to be DVM, you get there and now what? So uh, I am also learner all the way. I like to grow and learn. And so I, I relate to you on that and wanting to do that different ways. I had no idea that you could do an MBA on this type of topic. I think that was really fascinating to learn about you as well. Addie Reinhardt is another great example who took her advanced education and actually made a business out of it to help the profession as well. Along with your MBA, I read the article that you wrote for today's veterinary business, which talked a little bit about some of your uh, findings, as well as the lean thinking. As we, we talk about some of these things that you have found that help with burnout in the profession. Do you mind defining lean thinking for our audience? Because I don't think that's a a very typical term that's used in our profession.
We would like to thank our sponsor, VetBadger, the all-in-one practice management software that puts relationships first. Created by working veterinary parents, VetBadger provides all the communication, team workflow, and medical management tools you need to run an efficient practice and get home to the relationships that matter most. In support of parents in VetMed, VetBadger will be offering a signed copy of the book, Pregnancy and Postpartum Considerations for the Veterinary Team by Emily Singler to everyone who registers for a demo between between Mother's Day, May 12th, and Father's Day, June 16th. To register, visit vetbadger.com and find the link in the description below. If you'll Google lean uh, as a methodology, then you will find out, well, first you'll find a bunch of articles on how to lose weight, but if you right. <laughs> quote lean methodology uh, in business, uh, you will find a lot about Toyota and Ford and just the factory improvement and or sort of uh, process improvement lean. And it, there's a couple of fundamentals to that. And and some of this stuff is applied to uh, to how I look at the hospital, even in the smart flow days. That's where actually first time bumped into lean. But essentially, you see the process, any process that's going on is the one value stream from think about the hospital patient gets into the door uh, or even before that patient calls the clinic. Then the appointment is booked. Then they come into the clinic. What happens in the clinic? How do you do diagnostics? And then how do you check them on the lead? That's the whole, that's a journey. That's the value stream. And lean is essentially mapping that out and looking at every step of the process and optimizing it to reduce waste along that axis. Uh, that's just the sort of mechanical part of it. But the big thing that I learned in healthcare, they transformed that because there's a lot of principles that they added to it that not only improves efficiency as a methodology, it makes complete sense. Why would you do extra stupid steps, steps if they're not required and you're losing time? But then there is a huge mindset change behind it and how would it work? And that that actually pertains to anything that you're trying to do as a change management in the organizations. And it could be from a very small clinic to huge organizations that I've seen, like a Wisconsin healthcare systems. And then my mentor uh, was uh, the CEO of the principles in, in it were the ones that attracted me and mainly the principle uh, respecting the people that do the work. And it sounds very simple, but essentially when you're managing and how does it relate to consolidation, if you think about the management teams of consolidation out of 53 consolidations, I think there's only 10 that have veterinarians in the as CEOs and uh, only two that have veterinarians that are CEOs and MBAs. And essentially... If you are not a veterinarian at the top of the organization that is managing veterinarians, then you don't know what's going on. And then if you are managing it as a typical uh, sort of enterprise top down and not paying attention to what's going on in the clinic, then you're going to be managing your books and your financial, but not really what people need. So what lean thinking presents when they're talking about the um, respecting people that do the work. I spent time in San Francisco General, Boston General Hospital. The CEO has in her schedule uh, once a week to go down and participate in all the rounds with nurses, with doctors, and it's called GEMBA. GEMBA means uh, seeing what's where the work is done. So they would be present during the rounds. And what happens, and I'm stealing this from a colleague of mine, Dr. Davidoff. Uh, she, she uses a great phrase called removing the pebbles in your shoe. So essentially, it's not about the strategic huge change of the organization that we're doing this now, but it's the annoying things that are happening at the level of the hospital where you allow people that do the work to make those changes. I'll give you an example. 
So in Boston General, they had this uh, sign next to the bathroom in emergency hospital, uh, basically in the waiting area. It says, do not void before you see a doctor. And then everybody would go to the bathroom and they would pee before seeing a doctor. And then they wouldn't have a sample that is really needed for complete diagnostic exploration. And they've been always annoyed with this. And they has had this Hispanic nurse that said, people probably don't know what void means. Can we make a sign? Do not pee before you go to, to, to see the doctor. And then they made this change with, with her advice. She owned that sign. She was extremely proud because that was her sign. She almost like wanted her name on it because everybody started saving a sample. And that makes the person happy because you feel like you're making a change. When it's top down, you need to do this because we need to make money. Well, nobody cares. But when it's we're doing this together, therefore, I want your advice to tell us what's important to you on a daily basis. That's a complete, complete bottom up approach, which coincidentally and very interestingly is the fundamental culture to employee owned organizations, which is Galaxy is today. So the, the Galaxy Vets is actually owned by employees and the sellers. Everybody has equity from janitor to nurses to the receptionist and a fundamental part of the culture, allowing them to make small suggestions into how they want to optimize their work. So the combination of those two really, really helps you to understand that you're heard. And then when you're heard and you make changes, it actually improves your bottom line because you're a shareholder as well. Anyway, very long answer. But the lean is outlining the process, improving it along the way. And lean thinking is doing it with a suggestion of the people that actually do the work, bottom up, not top down. Exactly. When you participate in something, you have ownership and feel responsible to making it happen. So when you do things together in that way, absolutely. You read that in multiple leadership books as well. So I love that approach. And making it more collaborative. It really is everybody's contributing. It is their their company, their mission together. So I really like that. And right. I, I can see how that can also improve burnout because a lot of burnout is a lack of control is part of it. Now there's a lot of reasons that go into burnout, as you said, but I, I think that's a huge one as well is not feeling like you have any type of control. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because because there's there's multiple triggers to burnout and most people think that burnout is essentially just working too hard, but it's you know there's there's many triggers and lack of control is one of them. Yeah, what were some of the other ones that you saw uh, doing your MBA? Well, it's it's not that I saw, I read about them. So I, I can't claim that I defined them, but there are six classic ones by Christina Maslach. So lack of control is the first one that they're talking about. Uh, the second one is conflict of values, which happens a lot, especially with the change of ownership of the hospital. So when you're changing ownership and you know the, the owner of the hospital that you got a job with, interviewed with, worked for maybe you know, five, 10 years, then disconnects and says, I just found a wonderful home for all of you. And everybody is looking at the seller and thinks you just got rich and we got screwed. So, and then the values that are forced again, top down on them and these companies coming in and saying, we have these wonderful core values that we invented in the boardroom together and put them on the wall here. And we all have to adhere. You can't, this is an interesting thing about uh, core values is you can't 
make people believe in your core values when you acquire the company, they either align with them or not. And it's not a good or bad thing, but it's something if you invented it in the boardroom between three executives or five executives, it's not what your company is about, especially when you bought a new team. Uh, well, it probably sounds bad. Bought a business with a new team in it. <laughs> um, and, uh, and yeah, so conflict of values is a big one, and especially during acquisition. Uh, work overload, we mentioned, that's a, that's a typical combination. And then insufficient reward, and not only in the sense of monetary, but also in just enough saying thank you for the work that you do on a daily basis, this sort of culture of appreciation. And then the unfairness, if there is sort of favoritism or things like that in the in the team and community break, breakdown, when there's no uh, paths for feedback and no training for feedback. We're the, the veterinary teams are the worst in this. They will never provide feedback, the rumors, the anger and all of that stuff and the conflict mitigation. Those are the two things I think that every vet school and tech school should incorporate in their curriculum. Feedback provision and receiving. We're terrible at providing and receiving feedback and conflict resolution. But that's the breakdown of the community. So uh, lack of control, conflict of values, work overload, insufficient reward, unfairness, and community breakdown. Those are the classic ones. Yes. And actually, I, I hope this is along the same lines. It definitely makes me think of it. In your article, you said the increased prevalence of mental disorders, occupational stress, and an unwillingness to speak up contribute to the towering numbers when it comes to um, burnout. So I wanted to pull out the unwillingness to speak up. And I don't know if that has a relationship with our very poor ability for feedback, um, either giving or receiving. But I have personally seen this listening to other people. One example that has come up pretty recently was a, a colleague and she was thinking about leaving the profession. So I asked her if she had shared this with anybody else in the profession and she said no that she felt there was this responsibility to be positive and that bringing up these feelings or thoughts would not be positive and that she was afraid that she would be shut down and not supported. Does this ring true at all for you? I think that uh, you're right, that uh, inability to speak up and talk with someone when you're facing the problem or you're seeing the problem. And I, I think that's, that is a big thing. Um, it can lead to uh, really bad events if you don't stop it early. And that's in terms of the feedback, but also being afraid to speak up in this. I, I'm actually, you know, th this is dangerous. If you don't speak up and if we're going to be all positive and, you know, uh, rainbows and unicorns that's that's when when the suicide happens we find it shockingly alarming and never heard about it and why would this person do that but that's because being afraid to talk about it um, i mean again it manifests itself in different symptoms and when my alcohol consumption went through the roof i thought i have a different problem and then it was an addition to this problem, but it was a symptom rather than the cause. And when I figured it out later, then that was a symptom rather than the cause. Then I realized that if I were to ask someone, say, hey, is this abnormal? Then I, you know, I thought it was normal and I'm just coping with stress. And this is, I'm Ukrainian. That's what we do. 
and then eventually it turned out that it led to what it led to so i think that this is very dangerous for both person that is not wanting to speak up as well as for others because if i heard from someone someone not afraid to talk about the feelings and how they feel then i might identify with that person and be like oh it's not just me it's not just me feeling this way so there's other people that feel this way did you find a solution for it and only when you speak up and finding and identifying yourself with people with a similar problem and those that found a solution then you will actually look up to them and form an environment in which it's actually easier to find the solutions to the problems we, that we have. So back to what you were talking about in a business model where everyone in the business has the ability to speak up and make changes. Have you seen that that also helps set up a culture where people can talk about even personal problems as well? The transparency is a paramount of all the organizations because that what creates trust. And then when you have a trust in the organization, then the personal issues can come on the surface in mixture of the business issues. And, and that's very important because, again, when people are not in the environment where they have trust over the business issues, then they would never share their personal stuff. Because, you know, if I can't tell my boss that I don't want to see three appointments in one appointment slot just because they're they're shoving those. And then this is exactly what was with me. That was the last job that I had as a veterinarian. Every time I would have one 20 minute slot, they would book three appointments because they would admit anybody who comes through the door. And then I would go back to reception and say, why are you doing this? We had a very clear conversation about it. And then they would go to the owner of the practice and the owner of the practice would come to me and say, I told him so many times not to do that. And then she would literally say to reception and said, don't listen to him, book as many as we, as you can, because anybody who comes through the door has to be seen. And then that lack of transparency and lack of communication and, well, basically lying in that case, was something that really could burn you out. So I think it's a paramount importance. And what I'm seeing just as a practical example, so in Galaxy, we don't have any limitations who wants to talk to who, uh, as well as who wants to solve what problems. We have this meeting every week. It's called Town Hall. It's all hands. Every single person is on that meeting where we kick off any projects that we start. And if just a very uh, easy example, so someone, uh, so CFO, Chief Finance Officer, was starting a program on how are we going to provide bonuses and what is the bonus structure in the company if we ever will have any bonuses. And then someone from our Ukrainian team who is in, op in operations in Ukraine said, I want to be as a part of uh, thinking in that on that project. And you can't, you can't say no. Anybody, it could be receptionist from any clinic, it could be anybody who says, I want to be a part of that brain, uh, brainstorm. And that's exactly what we promote. So, and you see that people come to each other and they're more open. They know that the company is fully open to any feedback and anybody can, can come to me. It was a silly conversation this morning that I had with one of our executive admins. She said, I heard this rumor, but I didn't want to say anything because I thought that maybe it's an information that we shouldn't know. And I said, if you ever think that way, then in this company, there will be information that someone shouldn't know. Tell me and I'm going to leave this company because this is not how we operate here. Everybody can know everything and that's how it's going to be. And those conversations will allow people to think I can share personal stuff as well and look for solutions. I like that a lot. One of the last conversations I had was really around building trust within your team and also to your clients as well. Um, I think when your team is set up for that 
culture that is a similar culture that you can extend to your clients. And without that relationship with your clients, you can't practice best medicine either. 100% agree. And and I found even from from my clinical practice days and, and in many, many other situations, I think the most trust you can build with your veterinary team is by telling them that the client is not always right. This phrase that the client is always right is killing our profession. There's so many people that are mean to veterinarians and technicians. They're not always right. And that's been in every hospital I worked. I said, look, I can find another client easier than I can, I can find another technician. It's very simple. Yeah. And when you know you have someone who's going to support you, back you up in those types of yeah. situations, you, again, that's going to help. That's where the trust starts. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. You also have an interest in telehealth as well. And this is a debated topic, I guess, in, in our profession. So where does telehealth come into some of your visions? So uh, telehealth is something that I was monitoring for last probably five years in the industry, because since the Veterinary Innovation Summit started, that's been the hottest topic there. Every year we talk mm-hmm. about VCPR, and every year we talk about how we fight with the California Association, Veterinary Association, to do telemedicine, and how Ontario did it first time, and nobody died yet, and yet we still cannot do it blank. And we're not trusting our veterinarians to conduct the phone conversation with the client more than the personal conversation. Like All of that just boggles my mind. But uh, the interesting thing was that through our other podcast, the Veterinary Innovation Podcast, I talked to a lot of entrepreneurs and startups and, and I monitor and I'm an angel investor in some of them. And I was always curious about telemedicine. When is it going to change and when is it going to step into vet medicine? And then when COVID happened, I thought, this is it. We're going to now use telemedicine. And veterinarians turned around and adopted curbside assistance. They didn't go into telemedicine. They started to do more of the same thing with the slower workflows while the bosses are asking to generate the same amount of revenue because they're buying these clinics. So so I've been monitoring this for a long time in our domain, and I was very close to becoming an investor in the telemedicine platforms. But then when COVID didn't change our profession, I remember a conversation with one consolidator when we were consulting them, and they said, oh, we got it. As soon as the COVID hit, we had 46 clinics and we put them on telemedicine platform within two weeks. And I said, what has been your revenue in the last three months from telemedicine? $273. So the the telemedicine is very difficult for our profession. We're very difficult uh, laggards, if you'll talk in the terms of Crossing the Chasm, which is one of my favorite books. So we're laggards in terms of adoption. We hate technology and uh, we're very comfortable in the status quo. And in the overwhelming environment where appointments are both tripled into one slot, thinking that you also somewhere in parallel will be talking on telemedicine is unthinkable. And veterinarians just don't think that way. And in the vet school, we think about there's an appointment in the room. I walk in, take a history, go back, document it, order blood work, x-rays, and then discharge the patient with the medication. That's the workflow in their head. So there are a couple of revolutionary companies that have done it right. And there's more developing. There's uh, And they're, they all have heavily um, engaged in telemedicine. And it's Modern Animal, Bond Vet, Dutch, and Galaxy now. Basically... What they've done, they they split 
And the telemedicine is something else in parallel with your brick and mortar hospital. So if you have one augmenting the lack of capacity in the other, I think it's doable. What I mean by that, if you will have a triage channel where you first assess the patients would not be serviced by telemedicine, and those that could not be, you send to the physical location. But then based on the VCPR in a given state, if you can send them to telemedicine and conduct initial, uh, not the physical exam, but at least the history taking understanding of the problem, then you can follow with a physical visit without seeing a veterinarian in the hospital and just do blood work and x-rays, which could be sent back to the virtual veterinarian to follow up with an online prescription. All of a sudden, you expand the walls of the hospital. So it is possible. I'm very passionate about it. But it needs to be thought through not as the same people that work in the clinic now start doing this, which is a huge part of Galaxy because this opens up an opportunity to create variety in your work. And the big problem when we have kids and we can't uh, be attentive as much in the hospital, we want to be good parents, but at the same time feel like failing veterinarians, especially with the female profession like we have, then telemedicine is ideal route of splitting your week into a couple of shifts in the hospital, a couple of shifts at home is telemedicine. And if you love emergency like I do, one shift a week not to burn out. That's exactly the environment that we're creating in Galaxy. So you could actually rotate between the services, create variety of work, conduct your uh, proper work-life balance with your kids and everything else. So I think telemedicine has a huge potential. Most industries were disrupted with technology and they are being disrupted. You look at the taxi and Uber, you look at the Airbnb and hotels. And uh, and now I think we're there. I think we're on the cusp of this transition, which I love being not the first, but at least in the first sort of five that will change the workflows and allow veterinarians to do this remotely as well as uh, we're not going to have more vets. In the next five, 10 years, we're not going to have them radically as many as we need. And doing this through splitting the services into sort of semi-remote or augmented by virtual, I think it's the, the way to go. Now you're hitting a lot of passion topics for me. Uh, I went to the Veterinary Innovation Summit last year for the first time. Loved it. I have been following your podcast, the Veterinary Innovation Podcast, since oh, thank then. Because that's where I, I, <laughs> I first heard about it. And I actually met your your co-host Sean. there. At, well, yeah, Sean. And so I call him my junior host. The so junior host. Excuse don't me. Tell him. Yes, sorry, Sean. <laughs> um, but you said something that was kind of sparked a question for me when it comes to our young training veterinarians, and they are taught a certain way of practicing veterinary medicine. Is there an opportunity to start teaching them or at least introducing the idea of telehealth earlier in that training? 100%. I think, but but I think it will, uh, I think we're in early stages of that because there's, you know, there's associations that don't want to accept telemedicine as a thing. So therefore putting into the curriculum of the of the university where by graduating, they'll say, well, I can't practice this anywhere. I don't think that we're there yet. I think okay. there needs to be a couple innovative companies like us and Bonvet and Modern Animal that, that will get a round of veterinarians through this workflow that will say, hey, that's kind of cool. I would like to do more of that. And then you have a certain generation of vets that will go back to vet schools and say, hey, we should have this in the curriculum. If you think about it, we don't have dentistry in the curriculum. 
this is crazy like vet schools don't have dent i i didn't have it <laughs> so yeah exactly so vet schools if you think veterinary medicine is slow to change vet schools are no to change <laughs> so so i think we need to be innovative as people that are doing it and then take it back and say look this worked this is not evil anymore. There is no policies against this. And then let's start training our vets to balance their life. And hopefully the burnout will push into that too and saying, look, we need to start doing this remotely. There's some stats that I've seen that there's like extra 40,000 vets that we need by 2030. Oh, crazy. And we graduate 3,000 a year. So if you'll add it up, we're not going to have enough. <laughs> so Yeah. This is a call to my my young veterinarian listeners and, and not just veterinarians, vet techs. I think the whole, you know, veterinary team can help here. But when you're young, see that this is something you can learn as well. Reach out to those who are at the forefront of doing these types of thinking in a holistic way, not only a better way to serve our clients, but to serve ourselves, to, to give us some career options, some flexibility in our lifestyle. But also it's the younger generation that you said seems to be the most impacted by burnout, at least in your, your 2020 article as well. So I think it's an opportunity for the younger generation to, to help these initiatives and try them out, find, again, find hospitals that are trying to implement these types of strategies. I, I think what's also important, I, I like that you put an emphasis on, you know, it, it doesn't have to be young, but it's, it could be a longer career path than the technician career today. Because by 35, 40, you can't wrestle on the floor anymore. Your knees are blown and then you can't. So we have people with the most knowledge leaving the profession because they can't do the physical part. So in Galaxy, the teletriage component. So when the owner texts to Galaxy Vets and it's a global sort of one service, then there's a group of technicians that are answering that teletriage text. And then that's an amazing extension of the profession to the technicians that don't want to wrestle dogs on the floor and working from home in telemedicine. So definitely research it more, definitely join the teams because you don't have to leave with all that knowledge and all that experience. You don't have to leave the profession if you don't want to do the physical work anymore. Exactly. And since your article that I keep referring to was published in the end of 2020, which is kind of like the height of the pandemic. And on top of that, your veterinary innovation podcast, where you're learning about all these startups and whether it's technology, I've heard all sorts of things that on that podcast, what else have you learned from the past couple of years and want to implement to help the profession? I think my kind of light bulb for me was this workflow of utilizing the teletriage and telemedicine. That's been probably the most sort of moment for me that is like, oh, this is how we're going to change the profession. Because I was trying to, for the last sort of seven years, I knew that this is not, it's not sustainable. We can't. And in the two years of COVID, the population of pets 
came up people you know all everybody got a covid puppy and and an air fryer i heard and <laughs> and we didn't increase number of the vets and we're leaving the profession so anything that increases the throughput through the vet hospital not incrementally it needs to be a disruption and i think that this is a disruption using the incoming call essentially the old model is incoming call into the clinic which you have to convert into appointment that's how we think because you don't monetize the the appointment uh, sorry, uh, the phone call. So therefore they need to come in. So you need to charge them. So anything that calls into emergency, everybody heard that. That is like your main goal is to get them in the door. Well, not anymore. We have too many pets and some of them don't have to be there. So I think that this this been the biggest sort of light bulb moment for me. And that in combination with the membership model, which is essentially then you have your clients transformed from the transactional medicine where you come in and you just pay for your service, but you have this access to care through membership. And then that covers your initial exam, which is very interestingly increases the number of visits per year rather than each transaction. So therefore the barrier for the client lowers to call the vet because people are always going through this all kinds of emotions and, and research until they call the vet. You'll Google stuff. You'll ask your friends. You'll then think about, I don't want to sound stupid calling the vet. Then vomiting blood for a couple of days is okay. Let me wait for five days. That's what you get in emergency when you work. My dog's been vomiting for five days. Is that okay? Vomiting blood. No. <laughs> what do you think? Uh, but essentially when people know that they can just text and with this new generation, when they can just text and ask a question that costs nothing, is a huge advantage. So I think that's for me was sort of the revelation. Other startups that I've seen that were very interesting, just to sort of maybe as a summary, uh, the new oral cancer medications were phenomenal. A uh, couple things, uh, Dr. Dave Briette, and I unfortunately don't remember the drug that they came up with, but it's a, a lymphoma treatment that is an oral medication. Phenomenal in inventions. Uh, these are the big sort of pharma things. And then some of the, uh, anything related to artificial intelligence. So they're not beginnings anymore in the digital radiography and uh, recognition of the patterns and suggestive diagnoses that uh, help without the help or augmented by help of uh, radiologists. They've been very interesting and uh, not surprisingly, everything that's related to HR and just talent acquisition uh, is just the hype because there's no vets you know, if we all get these wonderful tools, how to hire vets, well, the vet, the number of vets didn't change. So what we need to do is really to think, how do we optimize incrementally every veterinarian's workday? How do we remove the pebbles in their shoes? And how do we make it a pleasant workflow for them and increase the throughput? I would like to make sure that we have time for our final four questions I, that I ask everyone to wrap up the podcast. And the first one, what is something on your bucket list? Um, well, it's pretty much what we've been talking about. <laughs> Decreasing burnout in the veterinary domain. And I want to have measurable results that we could say we take this group of people and after this, it's measurable that the burnout is decreased. So it's not only in the tactics, but it's also how do you measure that? If you just say, yes, I decrease burnout, but you can't measure it, then it's not going to work, but that, that is something I'm passionate about and actively pursuing. Nice. And what is a moment of simple joy? My daughter, uh, 
she is two and uh, they have a bit of a gap with my son who is nine. And uh, I, because I was building the first start startup uh, when my son was very young, when he was two, I feel like I didn't, I didn't see as much cool stuff as I see right now in her. So anytime I see her, that's a, that's a daily moment of joy. Oh, I love that. For number three, if you could create one law that everyone had to follow, what would your law be? Stop lying. <laughs> it's very simple. But I mean, to the fundamental level, uh, there's two types of honesty that I recognize. There's honesty and then there's rigorous honesty. And the rigorous honesty, when you truly, when nobody around with yourself think that you did the right thing or said the right thing. I think that if we all follow that very simple law, uh, the world would be better. Yes. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with the people all around you. I like that. Yeah. And finally, what is something you are most grateful for? I would say after the events that I went through for my life, because uh, I gave up without uh, the moments that I have now and and some things that I that I experience. Uh, since uh, they were arguably harder than things that I worked through before, but it does give you a different meaning when you're when you're trying to sort of for the second time. Understood. Yeah, you you mentioned earlier too. I'm I'm going off script now. That you played in a band. Do you still play? And what do you play? Now, I, well, I have two guitars in front of me behind the monitor, and the purpose was that uh, I will pick it up more often if I stare at it, uh, and uh, I don't even dust them enough, so. <laughs> but I used to play, uh, and I actually used to play bass because that's just uh, that's just what I, what nobody did, so I had to pick that up. <laughs> yeah, you got to have the full band, you have to have the certain instruments, so. Right. And that is something they teach you in, I think, it is it Atomic Habits? One of those hob habit books is keep it right in front of you so you constantly have the reminder. I didn't know yeah. that. I know the book, but I didn't, yeah. I know I, I even have the book, but I don't think I read it. So yeah, it's a, you're, you're already living it. Do that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you. This has been the Vet Life Reimagined podcast. Whether you are listening or watching on YouTube, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Please make sure you are subscribed to catch all these amazing people in our profession. Also, send this episode to someone you think who would appreciate it. Have a recommendation for someone who would be a good guest? Please reach out on LinkedIn, Instagram, or Facebook. There aren't that many Dr. Sprinkles. Until next time, Vet Lifers.